Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy our teaching time with our special guest speaker. It's great to be with you uh, today. I'm glad it's worked out so that we could get in on a picnic at the same time. So uh, enjoy. I was surprised that there were some, actually some of those sausages left after the number that I ate, but uh, that's good. The uh, thing I'd suggest is uh, I want to get into that bounce thing, you know, but Michelle said I wasn't allowed in there. Uh, get some of the parents mad if I'm bouncing in there with their kids. I'd like to suggest for next year that you have one of those dunk things, you know, you pass and get the staff up there and, uh, yeah, you vote for that. Okay, we got it. I want you to turn with me to 1 John. So if you've got your, uh, your cell phone, you can pull it up on that, or uh, your Bible. If you have a, just pull a pew Bible out in front of you. It's underneath the seat in front of you. It's page 1302. We're looking at uh, passages in 2 John, excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. Now, life is full of tests. It seems like they never end. It starts out from the moment you're born. You take a test. It's called the APGAR. And so as soon as you're born, you're caught by a, a nurse or somebody, and they, and they look at your appearance, your pulse, your grimace, your activity, your respiration, and they evaluate whether you need to have some immediate intervention. But it doesn't end there. Because throughout, throughout all your life, you're continually going back and getting more medical tests and examinations to find out how you're doing. But it's not just medicine. Uh, if you want to drive a car, you've got to take a test. You go to school, you're taking tests. And these, med- these academic tests continue until you get into a university. But then you have to take a test to get into the university. But once you finish your education and you get your profession, uh, there's usually a test you have to take, uh, depending on your profession, to get certified. And once you're certified, if you're in uh, medicine or you're in transportation or education or one of the trades, you have to keep taking continued education for more tests to keep your certification. You know, even when you die, depending on the circumstances of your death, you might be tested to find out why you died. Uh, These tests never end. Well, I just want to encourage you this morning because we're going to take a test. And those of you who are in school somewhere, you probably thought you had the weekend off, but there's some tests we're going to take. Because 1 John is all about tests. It's the test of life. John wrote his gospel to show us how to find life. He wrote this letter to tell us if we have that life. And in the chapter of 1 John chapter 2, there are three tests actually in there. The first one is um, a moral test. You saw that a couple weeks ago. And it is about obedience. And the question you have to answer in this test is, who do you obey? The next test is a social one. And the question there is, uh, or the test is about love. And the question is, who do you love? And we come to our passage this morning, and it's a doctrinal test. And the test is, the question on the test is, What do you believe? So let's take a look at this. Uh, 
<clears throat> we start out here with uh, verse 18. It says, children, it is the last hour. Last hour. We live in a digital age, and there's some advantages to that, and there's some disadvantages. I was sitting in my office, and uh, I was wondering what time it was because I had an appointment coming up. I didn't have my watch or my phone with me. So I called to my daughter, who was sitting in the other room, and I said, uh, Danny Ray, what time is it? Because there was an analog clock on the wall. And uh, she said, I don't know. I said, well, look at the clock. And uh, she didn't answer me. So I walked into the other room, and I said, well, why didn't you tell me what time it is? She was in first grade. And she said, Daddy, I can't tell. And I realized, wow, she's a digital child. She didn't know how to read an analog watch, clock. She got an early Christmas present for that, uh, as a result of that. And so my question to you is, do you know what time it is? We're looking at three questions here. They relate to time, truth, and the teacher. And so you will pass the test when you know the time. Do you know what time it is? Okay, there's a digital clock in the back. I can see that. But I'm not talking about the time of day. I'm talking about the end of days. Do you know the time for the end of days? And there's three ways we can determine that. <clears throat> you know, the Bible is a history book. But every history book is selective of, as to the history it records. You know, Plato is a pretty important person in history. In fact, much of our society, our institutions, our education is based upon uh, Plato's philosophy. But there's nothing in the Bible about Plato because Plato is irrelevant to the history that's written because the history is about redemption. It is a history of a redemption. So the Old Testament is a, telling us about the coming of the cross. And the New Testament is telling us about the coming of the end. And so we're told here that we're in the last hour of the time. Now, as it tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, that there are people that say, oh, what do you mean the last hour? Are you serious? Uh, this was written in the 80s, uh, this letter. Not the 1980s, but the 80s before the turn of the first century. And so, and, P and Peter wrote back at the same period of time, and people were saying then, what are you talking about? You know, nothing has changed since the beginning of time. Everything looks the same. But a day and a thousand years are the same in the eyes of the Lord. He's, we're looking at redemptive time here. How do we know that we're in the last hour? Can you tell the time? You know, people thought that Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. And for those who remember, people thought that Y2K was going to be the end of the world. And that 9-11 was the beginning of the apocalypse. But none of those were true. I want to ask you how many of you were hoarding things during Y2K and preparing for the end of the world. <clears throat> we can tell here there are three comments that are made about how we can know the time. The last hour is revealed by the coming of the Antichrist. Back with me in, in uh, verse 18. I want you to track with me with this, with whatever you have in your hand there. Because I might just be making this stuff up, you know, so you can check with me and then make sure that what I'm saying is true. Children, the last, it is the last hour. And as you know, as you heard, as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. 
Antichrist. <clears throat> we're talking about the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, or Revelation chapter 13. He is the world ruler that comes up and sets himself up in opposition to, to God, to Christianity, to the Jewish nation, and sets himself up as God, as a false messiah. He is coming, and he is going to bring about that tribulation and introduce the, the end time. <clears throat> but what is this last hour? Okay, really, you know, he wrote this in 80, and this is like 1,960 years later. Really, the last hour? The Last Hour is like a series of movies. Think about Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, where there's prequels and there's sequels, and there's a lot of climaxes, and there's a lot of different things happening. And at the end of the first movie of uh, Lord of the Rings, I think it was Fellowship of the Ring, you know, it's, there's this tension there. It's, it's, it's not over with yet. The, the movie's in it, but yet there's, there's all this tension. There's something more to come. That's what it's like in this last hour. We're living in a time of tension. The disciples were aware of this tension. They experienced it as they were, as they were just being inaugurated and coming into the, the beginning of the last hour, which began with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Spirit. That inaugurated the last hour. And they were right on the cusp of this. And so Jesus is telling them that he's going to leave. And he's going to leave them alone. And, and there's this tension they have. Because think about this. Now, they'd spend this, this time with him and uh, uh, when it was come time to pay taxes, Jesus said to Peter, well, go and catch a fish. And when you catch that fish, open its mouth, and the money we need for our taxes will be there. There was a time when they were out uh, in the wilderness, kind of almost the wilderness. There was no towns around. And there were 20,000 people there, and Jesus fed every one of them. Nobody went away hungry. They were in a boat, and they're crossing a, a, a lake, and this incredible storm came up, and these men who were uh, veteran fishermen were scared for their lives, and Jesus came and calmed the storm like that. He did that more than one occasion. He raised Lazarus from the dead. This was the kingdom of God breaking into the present, and that kingdom of God continues here. But we're in this tension. When, he, when Jesus is saying, uh, I'm leaving you, they're saying, well, what are we going to do? We live in that tension where we have the Spirit of God, that we have the Word of God complete. We have these answers to prayer, but yet there's something wrong. We struggle with sin. The world in general does not recognize who Jesus Christ is. We're living in this tension between times. That's what's characteristic. The Antichrist is not yet on the scene. <clears throat> okay, the last hour is revealed by the coming of the, of the Antichrist. Secondly, the last hour is revealed by the presence of many Antichrists. <clears throat> Look with me back in verse 18 again. Children, it is the last hour, and as you know, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So we have a capital A, the Antichrist, but now many Antichrists, they're right here with us right now. And that's evidence that the Antichrist is coming, ah, that we're in the last hour. It's kind of like if you go to a concert and uh, there's some warm-up bands playing, but you're not here to hear those warm-up bands. You've never even heard of them before. But they're playing, that's not bad. But you're here for the main act. But you know when the warm-up band starts, the main act's about to come. And the fact that there are antichrists present right now is evidence that they were in the last hour, and the last act is about to begin. And the last act, like in the movies, has a last episode. So there's last minutes. And the last minutes have a final act. The last minutes is when the 
Antichrist actually gets, gets on the stage. The last minute is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in the last hour. <clears throat> so the Antichrists are here. Or what, are they, what do these Antichrists look like? <clears throat> well, first of all, there are those who say that uh, they are the Messiah. There's a course at Ohio State University in their Near Eastern uh, language and culture on false messiahs. Interestingly, they include Jesus Christ in there as one of those false messiahs. But you can think about uh, Jimmy Jones, James Jones in the People's Temple, or uh, David Koresh and uh, uh, the Branch Davidians, or uh, Marshall Applewhite, if you recall any of these, uh, uh, and the uh, Heaven's Gate, where all these people went and committed suicide because they were following these false messiahs. And so we think of these antichrists as, as these kind of people, these wicked, these evil people that cause others to follow them, and they think they're the messiah, and they... Uh, create deaths, but there's something else like suicides, but there's something more than that. False messiahs, or excuse me, not just false messiahs, but the Antichrist is one who is basically the spirit of Antichrist, denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's pervasive among us. And the people that hold to this position are called Antichrist in Scripture. My neighbor, uh, He's a, good, he's a great person, great man, a gentle person, a good, good friend of ours. He drives us to the airport and picks us up in, if we, when we're flying out of Harrisburg, when we're flying international. And so he's over at my house, and I'm talking to him about the gospel, and he says, yeah, he, he's going to heaven, he knows God. And so then I start talking about Christ, he goes, wait a minute, I believe that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a good man, and uh, so is Jesus Christ, and that's it. That is the spirit of Antichrist. So, the last hour is revealed by the coming of the Antichrist, it's revealed by the presence of Antichrists, and the last hour is revealed by apostasy. Look at apostasy. Look at uh, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they are all not of us. Okay, so there's apostasy is that desertion, departure, abandonment of the faith. And there's two aspects to faith. One is community, and the other is belief. Okay, they, these people here are departing from the community, the community of faith. Now, they didn't leave the church. These, there's a group of people here that left the church that John's writing to. They didn't leave First Baptist to go to Second Baptist because they heard that Second Baptist had better music. Okay, First Baptist was country western, and they were more classical people, and so they went over there. No, it's not that at all. Uh, they left the faith, and that's why they went out. This is telling us here that there's something very critical about the church of Jesus Christ, the community. Community is a part of faith. So I want you to notice something in here. There are five uses of the word us. It's kind of weird to read this thing. Like, okay, you keep saying that over and over again. Okay, I get it. Uh, for, it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. Okay, if this was a, uh, if you submit to your English teacher, she'd probably say, okay, stop with the us already, all right? Uh, but there's a reason for this. What is that? Christianity is not a private religion. We have the paucity of the English pronoun you. 
So you can use the, you use the word you, and uh, it can be singular or plural. So if I said, hey, I've got $1,000 for you, and I just want you to come up here and take it. Who am I talking to? I might be talking to the gal here with the uh, Eagles jersey on, 88. Is that, who's, who wears the 88 jersey? Okay, I might be talking to her, or I might be talking to all of you. But in English, I'd have to really point out to her that I'm talking to you. I'm just, just an example, okay? Don't get out of your seat. And, <clears throat> but see, we have this pause. So when we read our Bible, we always interpret you as singular. And our, our culture doesn't help us much because we're so individualistic. And so we read this, I'm thinking about me. So when we read like, uh, uh, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, we think, oh, he's talking about me. No, he's not talking about me. He's talking about us. And we read, uh, if, you were raised, if you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above. If you've been raised, oh, he's not talking about you. He's talking about us. Because your Christianity is primarily about us and not about you. That's why the community is critical to the faith. And that's the problem here. These people left the faith, leaving the community because of the issue of faith. All right. The last hour is revealed by apostasy, by antichrists, and by the coming of the antichrist. That's the first test. Do you know the time? The time is now. But there's a second test, and you'll pass the test when you know the truth. Okay, so how do you know the truth? I mean, everybody thinks they have truth. And, you know, it's popular today within our postmodern culture is that you can have the truth, but I can have the truth, and those two truths don't have to be agreeing with each other. Uh, it's truth for you, and it's truth for me, and that's fine. Just don't impose your truth on me. I won't impose my truth on you. And so is there any truth? Or is everything true? What does the Bible say about that? You'll pass the test when you know the truth because this philosophy and this approach to truth really just creates a lot of confusion. And it winds up leaving us without any truth. How do you know the truth? What's it tell us here in verse 20? But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. How do you know the truth? You know the truth by the anointing. Okay, what's that? Well, in the Old Testament, you've read about that, how these kings in Israel were anointed. Just before, when they came in, part of the whole ceremony of becoming a king, this happened to King Saul, it happened to King David, they were anointed for the role that they were to fulfill as a king. And if you look at both of the passages on these two men, for example, you'll notice that the Spirit came upon both of them right after they were anointed for this role to serve, in this, to serve as the king. The same is true in the New Testament, only it's a little bit different. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes upon you at the moment of faith. So we see this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21 and 22. So who is doing the anointing and what is the anointing? It says in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, and it was God who establishes you Established us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee so that he has anointed us with the Holy One. Who is the Holy One? As Peter said when Christ asked the disciples, are you going to depart from me also? He said, Peter says, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know 
that you are the Holy One of God. It's the, it's the Lord himself who's anointing us with the Spirit. So what does that do? Look at verse 20 again. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. All right. You're anointed by the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says you're sealed with the Spirit. It's the mark of identity. So that if you go to a grocery store and you want to buy some meat, and you wonder, okay, where does meat come from? When we were serving as missionaries in Africa, uh, I was uh, driving from the capital city back up to the hospital where we were serving, and I had uh, one of the employees with me, and we were driving along the road, and there was somebody standing there holding a groundhog, what was their version of a groundhog, and he said, stop, I want to get that, I want to buy that. And the guy they're selling the food on the side of the road, just driving along some dirt road, and there's this guy selling a, a dead animal. And I said, so I pulled over and he bought this thing and put it on the floor in my car, and I said, do you know how old that thing is? I mean, do you know, is that thing fresh? <laughs> do you know it's safe to eat? Maybe, maybe he just found that thing last week. Uh, you know, you don't know what the, how, the quality of the meat. You go to the store here, and there's a mark on your meat from the USDA, certified. It's a seal. It's, if you want to buy organic meat, you got a seal that says organic. All those hot dogs and all those uh, uh, sausages were organic, weren't they, Pastor? Yes. Okay, there's a seal. It guarantees the contents. And it also has the reputation of the person who puts a seal on there. That's what the Spirit is. He is a guarantee. He is the reputation of God is attached to the Spirit that indwells within us. And we're told that uh, there's another example, the engagement ring. Uh, in, first, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that the Spirit is a deposit. It's the word arabon in Greek. The Spirit is a deposit in our lives. The, the word arbon in modern Greek means engagement ring. And so that engagement ring is a deposit. It's a deposit, it's a trust that's given by the future groom to his future bride to demonstrate a relationship that's unique and a promise that he's going to redeem this in full. And so that is what the Spirit is. It's a promise of redemption. It's a seal of the Spirit. It's a representation of ownership. Okay. Now it says here, the anointing, the anointing, uh, you know the truth by the anointing, and the anointing gives you specific knowledge. It says, and uh, you all have knowledge. It's interesting. Uh, the King James uh, translates this, you know all things. And translators just struggle what to do, what to do with the word all. Uh, here in the uh, ESV, they says, you you all have knowledge. I think it's better translated, you all know. You all know. This isn't some secret knowledge, but the presence of the Spirit in your life gives you a certain knowledge. You all know. What is it that you know? Ah, that's the next point. What is the truth that you know? The Spirit in you gives you a certain truth. What is that? Uh, we need to be reminded this is what John is doing here, I think. We need to be reminded about what we know because deception is so subtle and the lie is so prominent. This thing that we know is the most fundamental aspect of the Christian faith. It's not about, uh, this, this, this thing we know is not 
if Jesus is coming before or after the tribulation. It's not about the presence or absence of the miraculous gifts in the church. It's not whether or not women can uh, uh, have the role of pastor. Those are all important things, but that's not what this is talking about. What is it? Without this, there is no Christianity. If you don't have this, uh, you have no hope as a Christian. This is what uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is about. Knowing the lie helps you understand the truth. Okay, we're talking about, uh, you need to be reminded of this. There's something we all know. What is it? We need to be reminded of it continually. And knowing a lie helps you understand the truth. Okay, let me give you an example. How many of you here, don't raise your hand, don't answer this, okay? You'll ruin my illustration. Uh, how many of you here know who the third president of the United States is? I'm sure there's a couple, a few eggheads here that know that answer. Uh, when I thought of that, I didn't, I didn't know right off the bat, so I looked it up. And so I'm going to give you three, here's a test, I'm going to give you three answers. And the truth is in, that an, is, is in one of those three, and the other two are lies. Okay, is the third president of the United States Napoleon Bonaparte? Uh, is the third president of the United States Oprah Winfrey? Somebody said yes. Okay, uh, is the third president of the United States Thomas Jefferson? Yes. Okay, it was kind of obvious. So knowing the lie helps you know the truth. Okay, these two aren't true. This must be true. So <laughs> the lie is to deny that Jesus is the Christ. That is the key point of this passage. Jesus is the Christ. To deny that Jesus is the Christ, to deny that Jesus is the Christ is to deny God. So my friend, my next door neighbor, who said, yeah, I believe in going to heaven, I know God, but I don't believe that Jesus is the Christ. No. If you deny Christ, you deny God. You can't have one without the other. This is exactly what he's saying here. Verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist. See that? I mentioned that earlier. There are many Antichrists with us. We think of the Antichrist as some wicked, evil person. No, the Antichrist is the person that denies that Jesus is the Christ. The most fundamental part of Christianity. There's that book back there. Uh, look in What's the name of that book that's sitting there? Uh, what is it? Christian Atheists. Yeah, I just thought, that's interesting. Because this is what this is. People claim they're Christians, but they don't want Christ. No, that's not possible. Okay. Sharing the gospel, I shared my gospel with my neighbor, another neighbor. And I started, I was talking to him, and I said, he said, wait a minute, John. I know about Christmas and the virgin birth and, the, and you know, Easter and resurrection. I got all that. I said, okay, Jim, tell me this. What difference does the resurrection make in your life today? And to his credit, he was honest. He said, it doesn't make any difference. That's the point. Because if Jesus is the Christ, it should have an impact, a profound impact on our life, our attitudes, our habits, our relationships, our decisions. It's transformative in all of life. There's no avoiding that, if this is true. So we can say that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, but it makes no difference in our life. If that's the case, do we really believe it? Are we passing the test? The truth is that Jesus is the Christ. Look with me at verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. There it is. 
Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. So what does it mean to confess? It doesn't simply mean to say that, well, yeah, I believe that. Confessing means to agree. And so I'm agreeing with God. Agreeing with God about what? Agreeing with God about myself. What does God say about me? He says, I'm a sinner. And that's it. Do I agree with that? And the other thing is we have to, we have to confess that it's agree with what God says about Jesus. <clears throat> he says that Jesus is the Son, that he is God in the flesh. It is Jesus who said, I and the Father are one. Philip said to Jesus, just show us the Father, it's sufficient. And Jesus responded to him, he who has seen the Father, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He's claiming deity. And so Jesus said, he is the Son. I have to agree with it. God said, he's the Son. God said, he's the Savior. That as the Son, he's also the Savior. He died on the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. So he's the, he's the Son. He's the Savior. He is the Sovereign. As the Son and the Savior, he's the Sovereign. When he rose from the grave, he met the disciples, and he said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is the Sovereign. Okay, that's what it means to confess. And so I have to ask the question <clears throat> of you and of me, if you say that Jesus is the Christ, how is his sovereignty manifested in your life? That's how we pass the test. Let's move to the third point, the last one. <clears throat> You'll pass the test when you know the teacher. Look at verse 24. And listen to what the teacher says. Now those of you who are parents, <clears throat> you understand this. And those of you who aren't parents, we've all been children, we've been there. When you talk about listening and paying attention, and the difference between hearing, listening, and obeying, it's a, it's, it's a progress between the three. Oh yeah, I hear it, but I'm not listening. I hear, I'm listening, but I'm not gonna do that. I mean, you do that all the time in academics. You'll hear, you'll listen, and you'll respond and give the right answer, but you might not agree with what's, what, what the test is telling you. <clears throat> Listen to what the teacher says. It says here in verse 24, let what you heard, let what you heard. Okay, what is, it you, what is it that you heard? Okay, look at back in chapter one. It says, it, that which was in the beginning, from the beginning, which you have heard, which you have seen with your eyes, which you have looked upon and have touched with your hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it with our full senses. This is the apostles. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. What's the message? That Jesus is the Christ, and he's come to give eternal life. That's it. Listen to what the teacher says. <clears throat> okay. And what does it say here? <clears throat> Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So we need to abide. We need to abide in what we heard from the beginning that Jesus is the Christ, and he's come to give us eternal life. Now, that word abide, we don't, we don't use that word much. Now, for those of you who have the NIV here, it's translated remain. But remain really doesn't capture the idea, because remain can just seem like I'm hanging out, you know? So, you know, if, <clears throat> just to give an idea how this is kind of difficult for us, sometimes you think about abiding. So you're, you're um, after work or after school, you're sitting by yourself, and your friends come along, and they call you on the phone and say, hey, bunch of us are going out to eat, why don't you come with us? And you respond and say, you know, I think I will abide here for a while. I'll say, what? 
We don't use that word. Because the, the word abide, it, it, it means to inhabit, to dwell, to reside. It's like your crib. Uh, your, your abode is where you abide. It's the resting place. Make Christ your residence. Okay, the Holy Spirit has already taken up residence in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. But, you know, we got to make this, we need to decorate this place so that it, it's like a home, make him comfortable there. Make it a place for him to live. What is the, let me, let me put it this way. What is the one thing in your life that if you no longer had it, your life would not be worth living? This puts the gospel in perspective. You know, is it your family? Is your job? Is it a particular, uh, uh, is it a sports team? Is it uh, your portfolio? Is it a romantic relationship? Now, what would it be? You've heard about uh, Jeffrey Epstein, right? Uh, multimillionaire, he owned uh, palatial places in Manhattan and Florida, he even owned his own private island in the Virgin Islands, and he was using apparently these residences for sex trafficking of teenage girls. He was arrested in July, <clears throat> and uh, facing all of these onslaught, all these people were coming out of the woodwork uh, with other stories about abuse from him. He hung himself in August in his jail cell because he was facing, if he was convicted, a lifetime in prison. And he was going to lose everything that he lived for. And he decided his life was not worth living anymore. What about us? What about you? What is that one thing? Listen to what the teacher says. And finally, accept what the teacher gives. Verse 26. I write these things to you. I think it's interesting. Because this is the 11th time in this book that he says this, I write to you. And uh, in fact, it's, no, it's the 13th time. And it's 11 times in the second chapter. I write to you. Okay, I get it, John. You're writing to me. We will do that sometimes, right? I'm writing this letter to you, an email. Hey, I'm writing to you to tell you. But he does this over and over again. He's trying to shock us. Get, your, get our attention. I'm writing to you about those who are trying to deceive you. My question is, are you being deceived? <clears throat> I suspect everyone in this room would say, no. But deception is something that happens that we're not, or we're not aware of, right? As soon as you're aware you're being deceived, you're no longer being deceived. And the fact of the matter is, the process of deception is taking place in the life of every one of us. And our culture is constantly throwing things at us that are denying this basic truth. The Lion King, what a great story, huh? Uh, the circle of life, the circle of life, that theme for that soul is a lie. It's reincarnation. It's a denial. Okay, come on, John, get, you know, chill out. This is a kid's story, you know. I'm just telling you, this comes from all these different angles, and it's a subtle deception about this basic truth. Don't be deceived. Have you ever received a bogus, uh, uh, gone on a bogus website and bought something that that website didn't really exist? Or how about that phone call, that email, that salesman uh, that uh, scammed you out of some money? Don't raise any hands. <clears throat> Deception. Except what the teacher says, four things. Don't be as deceived. You have what you need. Okay, where are we at? Verse 27. But the anointing that you received, <clears throat> you have it. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. John 16, 13. He will teach you. You've received it. 
and you can't lose what you own. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. That means that uh, in a court case or in a a dispute over uh, uh, material objects or or possession of something, that apart from external evidence or documents, the person who owns that, is in possession of that, is the owner. So here you're all sitting here, uh, a well-dressed group of people. I took my jacket off because I was the only one wearing a jacket, okay? But it's always easier to shed something than to put some on, right? If you're not where you're supposed to be. Okay, so everybody assumes here, nobody's walking up to you and saying, hey, this shirt belong to you? Or are those shoes yours? No, I mean, the fact that you're wearing them, everybody assumes they belong to you. So they'll say to them, hey, nice shirt, ugly shoes. You know, I mean, they're, they're just assuming that, you know, hey, this is yours. You can't lose what is owned. The Spirit owns you. You own the Spirit. He's in you. You cannot lose that. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, John 10. He will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13. Nothing can separate you, separate you from the love of Christ in Christ, from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. You're sealed. He abides in you. It's his home. He's taken up a residence, and he isn't going anywhere. So the last thing, move in. Move in to the gospel. The gospel is more than something you possess. It's something that you live. It permeates all of life. Make it a place where the Spirit feels at home. Live out the gospel. Evidence of life is a desire to be with God's people. There are two things that relate to faith, I'm saying. One is community, and the other is belief. Because the community is the place of belief. And that that which you possess is not something private or hidden. We're a city on a hill. And you don't take a light and you put it under a basket, right? Matthew chapter 5. It's too many of us have taken our faith and made it a private experience. It's private. It's personal. But it's not private. It has to be shared if we're going to grow. Make a space in your life for Jesus Christ, who is the Son, the Savior, and the Sovereign.